Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is managing editor James Kleiman to talk about HUD's cut to the mortgage insurance premium and the continued layoffs at Wells Fargo. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, good to be back. It's been two days, right? Three days? Like <laughs> we missed you. We had to We had to have you back right That's away. Right. Well, we have some really interesting things to talk about. So I would say first on my list is the FHA MIP uh, change that we saw this week, which has been debated and people have really strong feelings about. Tell us what happened and what the, what the effects are. Yeah, this is a big one. So HUD slash the FHA and Vice President Kamala Harris on Wednesday announced that the agency would be reducing annual premiums for borrowers and homebuyers. And industry drug groups have been pretty much begging the FHA to do this for more than two years. And their argument is essentially, look, affordability is at maybe the worst level in modern American history. And by reducing that annual MIP, the, the mortgage insurance premium, they can provide real life savings to existing borrowers with, uh, you know, an, an FHA insured mortgage. And, and of course, those who are also looking to buy a home with an FHA backed mortgage. And, and those buyers tend to be minorities who have lower income, worse credit, and have largely been shut out of the housing market over the last few years. Uh, according to the White House, more than 80% of FHA borrowers are first-time homebuyers, and over 25% are homebuyers of color. So, you know, the, the average home purchased with an FHA insured mortgage typically costs around half the price of the overall national median home. And, and these are very often, you know, th these are not million dollar homes. You know, they, they typically, um, you know, the, the average mortgage is less than $270,000 on an FHA home. And so what, what the FHA has essentially done here is they've reduced the annual fee to 55 basis points. And that is down from 85 basis points. And we haven't seen a cut like this since, I want to say it was January 2015, when the Obama administration reduced premiums to roughly the same level. I think they cut 50 basis points back in 2015. And of course, as, as uh, the old timers may remember, that cut was pretty short-lived. You know, it was rolled back uh, pretty quickly after it was instituted. Uh, but moving forward, so... By reducing the fee to what is essentially 0.3% of the mortgage, the government is saying, look, the average borrower is going to save about $70 a month, and that's roughly about $800 this year alone in 2023. And the White House says this is going to benefit roughly 850,000 borrowers and prospective you know, FHA homebuyers. And so they offered a few examples. The first is, let's say you're a family and you want to buy a home in Detroit. And you're going to get a $200,000 mortgage. You're going to save about $600 a year. Or let's say you're in Cincinnati and you have a $300,000 mortgage. You're going to save about $900 a year. Or if you're in Phoenix and you're not an iBuyer, I guess, uh, and, and you have a $400,000 mortgage, you would save roughly $1,200 a year. And in the most extreme example that they offered, let's say you're a family, you're buying a home in Austin, Texas. We know the crazy wild west of Austin and its housing market, and you want to get a $500,000 mortgage, you're going to save about $1,500 a year. So real savings, right? If 
you're among this relatively small uh, group of people who might benefit. You know, I don't want to um, kind of understate how important that means for someone who is struggling with inflation and just general rising costs in America. But we're not talking about millions and millions of borrowers. You know, the, the FHA segment of the market is relatively small. It's, you know, I think in the last quarter it was about 14% of origination volume. So they're still very secondary to the impact that the GSEs, Fannie and Freddie have in the market. But, you know, for people who could be saving $1,500 a year, that's a lot of money. That's real money. Now, in terms of overall impact, I don't want to say that this is a huge deal. You know, I know that mortgage trade groups have been publicly clamoring for this for years now. And because of the way that the FHA operates, you know, that they have to go through the congressional budget process, they basically couldn't get this off the ground until recently. And and the way it works is they have the MMI, you know, which is essentially like a capital backstop at the FHA. And it finally reached a level that administrators and, uh, you know, top policy folks in the Biden administration felt was comfortable, right? So it reached 11.11%, I want to say in November, and that is more than five times the statutory limit of, it's 2.0%. Now, a lot of people think that's actually really low considering the risk, but uh, we, we can get back into that in a minute. So the argument in favor of doing this is essentially, look, there's plenty of money in this fund if the economy falters and home values drop, which they've been doing over the past year. Well, I think it's really interesting because um, I, like you said, you know, this is something we've been paying attention to. And so this was something that was announced at the MBA servicing conference, uh, which is going on right now. And I really thought it was funny that, um, you know, FHA commissioner, Julia Gordon started off by saying the great news is that no longer your first question to me in any forum has to be, when are you going to reduce the mortgage insurance premium on FHA mortgages? Um, and I'm sure that, you know, like you said, it's been a very laborious process going through Congress. But also, I mean, you have people who feel like this, the risk, doing this is a risky move. And then you have other people who are like, this is, you know, a you know this is a no-brainer. Um, it's good for, for homeowners. So we I agree with you that we don't want to downplay that this could make a big difference for some homeowners. As far as the mortgage industry at large, this is not going to move the needle, unfortunately, very much for people who maybe, you know, it, it's not like going to offset what we're seeing, for instance, in mortgage rates. Right. And we're also not going to see a big transition from people who otherwise would have maybe gotten, you know, conventional mortgages. And suddenly now the pricing is so good on FHA products that they're going to jump over to that, right? I mean, this is not, not, not that it was the goal or the aim or anything like that. Um, but yeah, look, depending on who you talk to, it's either a very sensible plan that doesn't go far enough in addressing the very real challenges of affordability right now, or uh, it's it's an undue risk, and it's it's really a minor political victory for the Biden administration to say, "Look at what we're doing; we're making it easier on people who are uh, down on the down on their luck or just struggling uh, to make ends meet." And I think it's probably somewhere between the two, as it you know tends to be in this universe. The reality is, it is not a plan without risk, and and I think even Julia Gordon acknowledges that, even if there is a fair amount in capital reserves, and it's important in my view to think about the FHA's mission. The FHA views itself as 
as an entity that is providing housing finance options for those who are not currently being served by the market, right? It's an alternative to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac or, you know, other forms of, of, you know, housing finance that we don't need to get into for the purposes of this conversation. Now, Fannie and Freddie are, depending on the quarter, roughly two thirds, sometimes more, sometimes a little bit less of the mortgage market. And they have very narrow credit boxes. This has been a complaint of affordable housing advocates and and policy experts for years now. And Fannie and Freddie are not really set up to serve borrowers at the, the lower rungs of the housing ladder. That is squarely in the FHA's remit. Now, when you look at the FHA's own data, I think it's very clear that there is some risk. They do have a quasi-risk-based model, right? And and they have a fee structure that is part of that. And so there's an upfront fee, but most of the borrowers are going to opt to finance that into the loan. And so if home values do drop, there's risk in that upfront fee not being collected, right? Um, And then we can also get into the annual insurance, which is what the FHA is cutting from 85 basis points to 55 basis points. That number is set by HUD. And if it's not at a sufficient level, the MMI fund, right, taxpayer funded, uh, will have to cover, you know, whatever borrower defaults end up numbering. And while I I don't want to pretend like there's a tremendous amount of risk in the housing market right now in terms of defaults, they're not, right? Like, remember when the pandemic was, was, was very much at the apex and we saw, you know, geez, 11, 12% of borrowers in distress on the FHA side, you don't see that now. It's it's less than half that. And it doesn't mean that there's not risk and and conventional borrowers, you know, their their forbearance rates, their default rates are way, 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 way lower. So if you look at, let's say, a first time home buyer and they have a 95% LTV and a sub 680 FICO score, three quarters of those borrowers are going to get FHA loans. They're not getting conventional mortgage products. And more than 60% of FHA borrowers have a DTI over 43%. So you have a lot of borrowers out there who, in, in the words of certain people in the industry, like don't have a lot of skin in the game and they don't have much of a cushion if something goes wrong. And so if the economy falters or say the housing market drops another few percentage points in value, you're looking at potentially a couple hundred thousand borrowers in distress. And while we have a lot more tools in terms of the loss mitigation waterfall, um, you know, and and other major factors, I think that are um, more fundamental here, right? Like the lack of housing inventory will always keep prices a little bit higher, just because you know it's simple supply and demand, right? Um, but the bar- the Biden administration, I think, really wants to avoid uh, poor homeowners in America being forced into the rental market. So, yes, there's risk. I think we have a better system overall set up to mitigate that risk right now. I think that's so true. And I, I think that um, it's worth noting that even, even people getting FHA loans, I mean, the underwriting is pretty strict. Like you said, you, you talked yes. about, you know, what, what they're, what they have to show, what they have to do that. So I don't feel like this is combined with like a real, a real easing of lending standards. It's, and, and that's been the, the case for people who are saying, you know, the risk is less than, than what some people say, because, just in general, uh, credit standards, even for FHA, you know, it's not like we're just letting every, anybody buy a home. 
Right. And, and the FHA was, was very much singled out as, as really fueling the subprime crisis. And, and I think policymakers in the Biden administration are very aware that you don't want the goals of equality and, and housing equity to um, overshadow the potential risk there. And so cutting the MMI annual premium from 85 basis point to 85 basis points to 55 basis points is not that big. Right. It's it's lower than a lot of people actually wanted. You know, there are a lot of people out there writing op-eds and getting on their soapboxes and saying the FHA could absolutely take a 50 basis point cut if they wanted to and have plenty of money in the MMI to cover any potential losses should there be any. They didn't end up doing that. Um, and, and I think you're going to find uh, as many people who are unhappy with the size of the cut uh, on both sides, right? So people who think that this was too risky and people who think this just doesn't go far enough. And it, it speaks to the balancing act that the Biden administration really has to weigh in that they've made it very clear over the last month or two that they're prioritizing those inequities that they see in the housing market. And, and even look at, you know, the the bigger brothers to um, – brother and sister, I guess, uh, to the FHA and, and Fannie and Freddie, right? So the FHA recently made big LLPA changes by essentially reducing or eliminating uh, upfront fees for first-time homebuyers and those with lower credit scores. And, and this was seen by a lot of people in the industry as Fannie and Freddie, one, competing with the FHA for borrowers who are kind of in between the two federal programs, right? And then they're also implementing a big fee on DTI levels, which they'd never done before. And so a lot of people are saying, look, you're, you're now essentially taking, uh, you're, you're throwing out like the, the true risk uh, pricing system out the window and you're using it to subsidize borrowers with worse credit and in most cases, lower incomes. But again, like this is actually pretty consistent with the overall policies of the administration. They have made, you know, a, a very concerted effort to push Fannie and Freddie to make strides with underserved borrowers, especially in communities of color. The FHA has always checked that box, but but now, you know, the share of agency borrowers has grown and there's a lot more political pressure to make sure that they are delivering, uh, you know, in, in non-suburban you know, and, and uh, you know, wealthy communities where a good percentage of the borrowers don't have any trouble qualifying. Um, so, you know, when, when you talk to people in the industry, there are a lot of consumer advocates that wanted cuts to the M the FHA's upfront MIP, which is a little bit different, right? And and also changes to its life of loan policy, which requires continued insurance payments, regardless of uh, how much equity the homeowner has. And their argument is, look, that makes a much bigger impact than a 30 basis point cut uh, to an annual fee. And, you know, others said, hey, why not just take this big capital reserve fund that you say is so strong and can protect us from whatever headwinds are there? Why don't you use it toward like a down payment assistance program that is hyper-targeted, right? Because that's one of the major issues uh, for FHL borrowers is you're getting a 95% LTV because who has $100,000 in savings that they can throw at, you know, um, at a down payment for a house, right? And so- I think there are other approaches and no one is ever going to be fully happy with government policy of any stripe, right? Um, but I think you'll find that there are just as many people uh, who think it's okay, it's fine, 
but could have been stronger. And those who say, why are you taking risk right now with a looming recession? And when we're seeing home values drop in, you know, housing markets across America, like what, what's to, to save people $70 a month? Like, what are they going to do? Buy more eggs? You know, like, <laughs> is this, this is really a good policy. And, and uh, it's certainly debatable. I do think that down payment assistance portion of this is so important. Um, because, you know, you have people who are paying a lot of money in rent. Um, and sometimes in some areas, um, in in the uh, little suburb north of Dallas-Fort Worth, where I've lived uh, a lot of my life, it's definitely uh, better to buy than rent. You're going to be paying, you know, if you can afford a, a modest down payment, you are going to be paying less in mortgage than you are in rent. Of course, that's not true everywhere, right? But you do see like the, the difference between people who are uh, have a great rental history, have been able to afford their rent, have never been laid on their rent for years, and people who can afford a house, it's really the down payment. And you know, of course the whole the whole argument against that is well, you don't have enough skin in the game if you if you're getting down payment assistance. But again, I, I just feel like there are other ways to mitigate that and and uh, you know to your point, what is the the seventy dollars a month? But I, I know that people cheered it. I know that people have been asking for it. Um, I do think it's interesting to see Fannie and Freddie sort of, you know, they're already competitors with each other. Um, they they are very competitive with each other. They think it's a it's an integral part of of their uh, mission that they are, you know, that and, and there's a good that that's a good thing for the market that there's two of them, two government sponsored enterprises. Interesting to see them sort of go after that FHA borrower a little bit more. Yeah, and and I don't think that that they would. That the FHA certainly doesn't want, um, you know, to be thought of as competing with Fannie and Freddie. That they, they don't view that as part of their mission. I think it happens to be where, where this just sort of collides with policy. And if you're a borrower, these are the choices, you know, for getting a mortgage because you're trying to serve a population that just doesn't have that kind of cash. Like there's, you know, they they don't have the the means to do it without a mortgage, and. Um, yeah, I, I do think it's it's going to be really interesting also for participants in the market because we have larger questions about, you know, the, the risk-weighted capital from Ginny May that, that's been, uh, you know, debated. <laughs> uh, I would say a lot, of, yes. a lot of participants in the mortgage market are very upset with that. You know, the new DTI changes that we spoke about with the LLPAs for Fannie and Freddie, um, these are much more impactful on the operational side of mortgage lending and, and, you know, the insurers as well. And so that's, it's, it's more difficult now to run a mortgage company, I would argue, than probably, you know, any time in the last 15 years. And, and they, they say like, we're, we're just, we're hamstrung by regulation. We're hamstrung by all of these compliance requirements. And if you don't start streamlining, uh, some of these mandates and, and making it more, achievable, um, we're, we're going to continue to, to see mortgage costs increase regardless of, you know, these, these kind of what they would consider small measures to help with affordability. Which segues directly into the next story I wanted to talk about, which was more layoffs at Wells Fargo, which is obviously not just a, a mortgage company, but a depository bank, but that seems to want to get out of the mortgage business, um, uh, you know, that se- seems to be one of their things that they want to do. So they had another round of layoffs this week. Tell us about that. Yeah. So we, we confirmed that Wells Fargo did in fact lay off a large number of workers in their home lending division. They wouldn't confirm the number uh, sources in our sources have told the newsroom that it's more than a thousand people. 
And Wells Fargo has been making cuts every quarter for, I mean, a minimum a year and a half now. So no one would be surprised by this. Uh, but again, it, it does signify that Wells Fargo is is very serious about getting out of this market um, you know, in a controlled fashion, Wells Fargo doesn't want to fully exit mortgage. They want to be much smaller. They want to be able to serve their own client base. And then they also want to make the federal government and its various regulators a little bit happier about its position in, uh, you know, addressing, again, some of these inequities in housing. And so they have a special purpose credit program that they're tweaking right now. And that's really designed to improve the, the optionality uh, for prospective borrowers. And, you know, right now it's just a handful of communities. Um, but, you know, these are not loans that they're selling. These are, these are not Fannie Freddie loans. These are not jumbos. I think in a lot of cases, these are loans that they're going to be making to, uh, homeowners on on the lower end of the income spectrum, uh, because that's part of the it's part of the game. When when you're you know facing billions of dollars in fines, you got to make the government happy. And what does the government want? They want you to be showing that you can lend to communities that have been underserved um, by you and by others. You know, like Wells Fargo is not the only bank that is. I, I think maybe shirked its responsibility in in lending in, in urban areas. And you know the the banks will tell you. Um, you made it too hard for us. You know, that's where we're not there. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't think really the government cares about the reason it's the reality that if you're, uh, you know, a low income homeowner in Baltimore, you don't have a lot of great options. And, and the fact that your bank is not actually participating in this kind of market means wealth is not accumulating at the rate that you would want. So, so that's where Wells Fargo is. You know, we, we also have been hearing for some time now that they might be trying to, um, dump a huge amount of MSRs or servicing rights. And it's all rumors at this point, but it has shaken up the markets. You know, the MSR market has been all over the place. It's been extremely volatile because, you know, it's it's not really designed to absorb, you know, let's say, just throwing numbers out there, you know, a package of 80 billion in MSRs and then another big package of maybe another 50 billion in MSRs, right? And so, um, you know, Wells Fargo is such a big player. They're the largest servicer in America. They've got nearly a trillion dollars in in servicing. And if they're going to make major moves, whether it be on the origination side or the servicing side, that's going to have major downstream effects on every other lender, every other servicer out there. And that's going to be a benefit to some of them, right? Like if you're Penny Mac, you're probably thrilled that one on the servicing side, now you have more, you know, potential options there. And in correspondent where, you know, you often lost uh, jumbo originations to a bank like Wells Fargo, you don't have that comp- competition anymore. And so, you know, some are, are going to be happy about some of this and others are going to be um, really challenged by what happens, especially a lot of uh, you know non-banks that are in the origination space they they get affected by the implications of the secondary market if they can't sell you know their MSRs at uh, at par uh, because there's all this chaos in the secondary side of things and the pricing is just not good then well they have to have enough money uh, to to keep you know the operations humming and it's just it it means that if you're smaller and not as well positioned you have fewer options and and the fewer options you have, the longer this cycle goes, 
uh, where we're looking at rates in the mid sixes, high sixes, low sevens, maybe, um, you know, the, the harder it becomes and it's just, it's, it's kind of a death spiral at that point. It really is. And, you know, this, you and I have talked a lot about, you know, big depository banks and their appetite or not for mortgages over the last year. And I think this is so interesting that, you know, as you said, their, their strategy is existing customers. So they really cut um, different uh, loan originators who weren't tied to their branch offices, right? So, so the branches are, are where you're meeting your local community. It's also where you have the fair lending standard of you need to be meeting the, the mortgage needs of those communities. So in, in some ways, I mean, if you're going to do any mortgages at all, if you're a depository bank, which you have to for your existing customers, I mean, it's part of what you need to do. You have to be focusing on those communities because that's what you're being held accountable for. Are you serving those communities? Yeah. And, and look, I, I don't see any reason to think that we're going to see depository banks get back into the FHA chinny space. There's no interest, you know, among the the people that I talk to of getting back in there, even if they tried to make it a little bit easier. Um, it's it just, I think they would rather route things through these special purpose credit programs where, I mean, they, they have the largesse, you know, it's not like if, if just as a hypothetical JP Morgan Chase decided, okay, instead of, trying to do FHA lending and dealing with all the headache that that comes with that and the underwriting challenge and, you know, maybe even buying loans, you know, that are FHA. Why don't we just set up a few branches in, again, just by way of example, because I used it earlier in Baltimore, and we're going to develop programs where maybe we help them with, uh, you know, a down payment. Maybe we don't need, you know, all of the the risk modeling uh, that that is typically associated with loans that you're selling to the government, right? And you keep it on the books, and you limit your potential losses to, you know, whatever the bank executives deem is appropriate, let's say a hundred million dollars, right? Um, and you build it that way. And that's, that's a way to engender a, a sense with the U S government that you're making a good faith effort to lend in those communities. And by the way, those communities actually do need lending. It's not, you know, I think there's a huge benefit in having your, you know, retail bank that you do your personal or maybe business banking with. Um, and, and also provides you the, the mortgage option for your home, right? I mean, that's, that could be really smart. Maybe you have a financial advisor through that bank who can help you with all three, right? Um, but when you're breaking it up piecemeal and that forces you to go to, say, a Rocket or a Loan Depot or UWM, you know, they don't see the full picture of your life. They don't see there, – there's no continuity with the other, um, you know, financial positions that you're in. And so I, I think it would be a huge benefit if we had banks getting back into the inner cities. There is – you know, we talk about food deserts. There are banking deserts in huge parts of urban America. And there's no reason that banks that are printing money cannot have a presence in those areas. It's a really great point. And I feel like, uh, you know, if, if you're Wells Fargo, if you're Chase, if you're one of these big banks, you're, you're really looking at like, what's the risk? What's the reward? There's so little reward in mortgage right now that, you know, Part of this is is not monetary, but like you said, just staying on the good side of regulators, making a good faith effort. I thought it was interesting. Um, CNBC uh, reported that some of those people that were laid off um, had been part of, you know, they they got to go on the top producing 
uh, trip that, you know, uh, for those who surpassed 100 million in loan volumes last year. So it's so interesting. I mean, it's not just like, oh, they're cutting the people who are doing a good job. I mean, uh, they're really just changing their model. Yeah, you, you know what they're doing. So a lot of these top producers, first, a huge amount of them have already left. You know, I mean, the va- I would say the vast majority of like, you know, big fish in terms of LOs at Wells Fargo, they left more than a year ago. And that's partly because, you know, the, the way that Wells Fargo responded to all of these regulatory challenges was being very, I want to say kind of like surveillance statey with some of their employees. I mean, a lot of monitoring, a lot of restrictions, very little freedom. Um, you know, they, they didn't want to do a lot of cross-sale on products. It, it, just, it became a very different game. Um, but a lot of people who work in private wealth and mortgage um, can make a ton of money, right? Because as I've said, Wells Fargo was the jumbo lender in America for a very long time. And their pricing was so much better than anyone else. You know, they, they could keep it on their balance sheet. It didn't matter. They have a huge presence in Northern California, big presence in a lot of, you know, wealthy urban areas, uh, New York. They, they do a lot of business, you know, in New York doing condos and, and all kinds of you know, jumbo loans. Right. And so, um, the folks that are still there or until recently were still there, they're now on the market and, and they're going to be hot commodities because the lifeblood of mortgage lending is still sales, right? I mean, nobody's cracked the algorithm code better, never quite got off the ground in terms of figuring out how to do purchase with, um, you know, kind of a non-commission-based model. It's still eat what you kill. And if you have people who have those connections with real estate agents and wealth advisors and, um, you know, others who can bring you the leads, that's still a really, really, really valuable commodity for a mortgage lender who more than ever now needs to make it work in, in uh, you know, the originations landscape. And, and retail lending was down in the fourth quarter pretty significantly because retail, you know, traditionally relies more on tapping its servicing, uh, you know, um, network to mine for leads and, you have to be purchase focused. And, and yeah, I, I think Wells Fargo is letting a lot of good people go and that's going to be great news for the guaranteed rates and, and the, even the brokerages that are uh, doing comparably pretty well right now, they're, they're going to be ready. And if you're entrepreneurial and you know, you, you want to run your own team, you want to run business as you see fit, that might be a really attractive landing place. I love that. I can't believe we're already out of time. We had uh, a bunch of other things I wanted to talk to you about. So we'll just have to have you on again very, very quickly. Uh, but James, thanks so much for, for talking today. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Success might look different this year, but it's out there for those willing to work for it. That's why 2023's Gathering of Eagles will focus on forging opportunities, the perfect chance for industry leaders to take a proactive approach to continually move the needle in their businesses and the real estate industry at large. Gathering of Eagles will bring together the nation's top residential real estate CEOs, presidents, and C-level leadership teams to grow, network, and set the pace for what's next in our industry. 2023's GOE is at Omni Barton Creek Resort in the rolling hill country of Austin, Texas from June 18th until the 21st. Learn more and register your spot on the events page at realtrends.com. And we can't wait to see you in Austin.
Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.